So we're back at Blue Holler. Yep. We are. Back at the Holler. Back at the Holler. And we are drinking one of their uh, new beers mm-hmm. that is an actual Blue Holler beer called yeah. the Blue Holler Brown Ale. Is that what he's calling it? Amber. Amber Ale. Amber okay. Ale. Really yeah. nice beer. We're going to have Chris on here to talk a little bit about yeah. it. Yeah. I think you talked to him earlier, so we're going to cut to that here real yep. quick. Yeah. We're back at Blue Holler for the vinyl crawl, and I've got Chris here. How's it going? What's going on, man? Oh, you know, just another glorious day. Another day, another 50 cents. That's right. Uh, We do have a nice ice-cold beverage in front of us that we are sipping on here. Yeah, it's uh, it's the Blue Holler Amber. It's uh, one of the beers that's going to be released on the 28th. Yeah. When we do the grand opening for the brewery, so it's Saturday the 28th, about 2 o'clock. We'll have five or six. Not sure if the, the mm-hmm. last one's going to come in in time or not, but uh, that'll be the beginning of the brewery. And hopefully, uh, I want to say within a year to a year and a half, we'll have all 20 taps, just oh, straight blue holler beers. Yeah. Um, we'll have to see how Bowling Green can support that first. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, that's an exciting time for Blue Holler, for sure, to uh, bring the brewery side of things into it. <laughs> yeah, we've... Uh, for about two years now, we've been collectively saving and putting back and buying and crying and yeah. and blood, sweat, and tears. And, sure. and it's all paying off now. My my hands are even healing up, so right. it's, it's getting close. It's <laughs> Well, an early congratulations on the brewery opening. Thank you, sir. Cheers to that. And tell us about this beer that we're drinking. Well, it's pretty much just a straight-up amber. I wanted to save all the uh, crazy stuff for later and, and get some good beers in on tap right now. It's uh, basically two rows. got a little bit of 77 crisp on the back end mm-hmm. of it and some 80, 80 caramel. Uh, nice hop additions into it. So it's a little bit hoppier than most ambers, yeah. but it's not crazy over the top. It just gives it a little extra, a little something on the back end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, straight up amber, nice color. Good sipping beer. Yes, that's what we'll do with it. You think? Yeah, now, um, so we should have on the amber as well as uh, our American Light Ale. Mm-hmm. We're making that one for the hot rods, so we'll be able to carry that here. And then it'll be on full time at any of the hot rod events. You can go there and pick up a blue holler beer. Gotcha, that's cool. Uh, then we'll have the pineapple sour a session and a regular ipa awesome that way uh we can kind of hit everybody's palates right and, and start yep. from there so yeah. awesome sounds good well cheers and uh congratulations to blue holler thank you very much sir thank you It's good beer. Yeah, it's part of their new series for the grand opening of the brewery. Yeah. Side of Blue Holler, so that's big stuff. It really is. Um, it's got, uh, I think flavor-wise, it's it's got a lot of, it's a pretty round flavor to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, definitely have the notes of caramel and stuff that he was, you know, mm-hmm. he was mentioning. Yeah, definitely see that. Nice color to it. Unfortunately, I don't know enough about some of the more uh, technical aspects of what Chris was, yeah. But if that's anybody, why we have him here. Yeah, if anybody <laughs> brews their own stuff, hopefully that was you know helpful. Yeah, because for sure he kind of went the 
pretty in depth there and everything in that's depth. in it. Yeah. Um, which speaks a lot to how much how much is into craft brewing, like how many things go into it. Yeah. There's a lot of science to it and a lot of uh, tweaking and whatnot mm-hmm. that goes on right. to make it. One wrong move. Ruins a whole batch, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Um, but it, it's really nice. If you guys are in Bowling Green, I would highly suggest coming out on what day did he say it was? The, 20, uh, the 28th. 28th the grand of July is the, uh, the grand opening of the brewery. So, yeah. uh, so definitely come by and check it out because I think you'll really enjoy it. He said there was going to be three or four other beers as well that yeah. he's got. So, uh, but on to the record that we're talking about today. It is a, it's a favorite of mine and yours. I don't know uh, for the for maybe the younger crowd listening. I don't know how much they know about it. Maybe because it it's, I don't know. Yeah. tends to fly under the radar. I think. Um, yeah, it's the. It's U2's The Unforgettable Fire, and it is the bridge from their early new wave post-punk sound into their later more pop-oriented, um, pop-rock, I guess, oriented sound of, yeah. of Joshua Tree and post-Joshua Tree. Right, yeah. Um, so so it's, a, it's, a, it's a transition record. Very much so. And sometimes those can go wrong with a lot of bands when they try to transition mm-hmm. from from one known style to another. Yeah. Like there's there's yeah. lots of instances where let's use the Who for an example when they tried to transition into the '80s using oh um, wow what was the uh, um, what was the name of the record I can see it face dances face dances and the um, what was the other had them all on the front there. The kind of like computer font. Oh yes, um, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Yeah. It basically is everything after the Who by Numbers. Everything post that was right. the transition into them trying to, to make something in the 80s. Yeah. I don't know if they ever made it. They didn't. <laughs> I think they're still Spoiler trying. alert, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. But it, it just goes to show that when a lot of bands try to transition to a different sound, th- they don't always get rewarded for the experimentation. Yeah. A lot of times it just... It blows up in their face. They lose money. They lose fans. They can't create that sound in their head that they're talking about. I mean, we or, can even, you know, we could use the Grateful Dead as a, an example of this. They had many transitional periods yeah, where they tried different styles. You know, Shakedown Street was not an instant success. No. It didn't, and, and it didn't garner was, the notoriety it has now that people enjoy yeah, so much. Yeah, but at that, the time, it was seen as like, what, what is this? Disco Dead. That's disco what Dead. Is. Right. Or even Touch of Grey. When they went into a more slick, polished, I think that kind of worked though. It, yeah, I, I think Shakedown Street worked. I did too. That's the thing, but go to heaven, not so much. Right, but know? but the deal is like a lot of the times, longtime fans that are looking for a certain sound get disillusioned when the band tries to go a different route. Because yeah. I mean, let's face it, you get tired of playing the same music all the time as a band. You mm-hmm. want to, and you you should want your bands to try different things. Um, right. So yeah. I, I kind of have a, I have a hard time with people that, that tend to get disillusioned with a band when they try something new. Yeah. But in regards to unforgettable fire, um, basically they decided they didn't want to make war part two. Uh, war was a huge record for you two. They toured the world on it. Yeah. Uh, Sunday, did. bloody Sunday mm-hmm. was a huge hit. They put out the live at red rocks album. Do you right know what that. band opened for him at Red Rocks? Hold on. Hold on. Yeah, I do. Because I know we've talked about this before. We have, yeah. 
Uh, was it the alarm? It was the okay. alarm. Okay. Yeah. I was kind of shooting in the dark a little there, but right. your love of the alarm knows no <laughs> bounds. Yes. So yeah. I had to assume that that was probably going to be the right answer. Yeah, it was um, the alarm. I think that might have been. I don't know if that was their first. Could have been. Because we're talking tour, 82. I think it was, yeah. So it very well could have been. Yeah. Uh, but war was huge. You know, it had Sunday, Bloody Sunday. It had. Uh, New Year's Day. It was New Year's Day on war. I couldn't remember if that was. Uh, second, was seconds on there? I don't know. There, 40. There was a whole, yeah, there was a whole thing. and, and It was a great album. War yeah. was a great. Fantastic album, but very know. much in the new wave post-rock, post-punk kind of mm-hmm. vein. Yeah. It was closer to what their contemporaries like the police and bands like that were doing at the time um, with really intense rock music. and A touch of that protest. Yeah. Definitely. Anger, you know. Which, moving moving from there, I guess the band decided we're either going to kind of, like Bono started hinting to the fans, we're going to break up and reform, was how he worded it, which mm-hmm. is a terrible thing to say. He, yeah. But basically what he was trying to tell them is when we come back with the next record, you're not necessarily going to recognize us. Yeah. So, uh, so they go into the studio and they decide, hey, we, we don't want to go with Steve Lillywhite, who's been producing all of our other records. Fantastic producer. They get along with him yeah. fine, but they're yeah. like, we just don't want that Steve Lillywhite sound because he's he's got a, a method, mm-hmm. and his method works. Uh, it's made a lot of bands famous. Uh, Dave Matthews' band, for example, oh, has been right. one that, that yeah. had some really famous Lillywhite yeah. recordings. True, true. Um, but they decided we don't we don't want to go with him. We want to go a completely different route. So they decided we want Brian Eno. So <laughs> that was a lot easier said than done. Uh, at that time, Eno was beginning to become really well known for his ambient work, for his more experimental work. He had already made it through the Roxy period of the '70s yeah. and his, his own solo rock music period of the '70s, and he was starting to uh to work more with daniel lanois as his engineer and they were doing more of the soundscapes is that how lanois kind of got his start i think so because you know that apollo record came out in maybe like 80 or 81 i want to say yeah and that's credited as eno and lanois okay uh lanois was working as his engineer though that's the earliest time i I remember seeing lenoir's name well he was super young yeah, he was sure. you yeah. know a young Canadian so. upstart at the time. Yeah. I'm not sure if he had already played with some bands and maybe that's how he got involved. But because uh, he he had a very successful solo career as well later on in the '80s, Lanois did um, very successful to a degree. Well, still, I mean, check out for the Beauty of Winona or whatever. Even that, the album before that, yeah, that had the maker on it. Yeah, just check them out; yeah. they're great. But yeah. I digress. Um, so he, so they find Eno. Um, Eno listens to War and goes, "No, I, I'm not gonna. I don't. It just doesn't do anything for him. He's right. like, this. I don't see. I don't see what this is. I don't see how this is going to be any fun for yeah. me or them either one, because Eno is is somewhat of a perfectionist. He is very interested in experimentation. He's not interested in any kind of uh, linear theme uh he had just finished working with bowie not too long before that so they had just done their sessions for heroes that was in 78 oh yeah so we're talking like four or five years away from that so he's you know he's he's still in a very experimental phase uh which you know has never left his experimental phase but regardless 
he meets with the band. They're like, you know, we're serious. We really want to change our sound. Um, they had seen this exhibit while they were on tour uh, about Hiroshima, this art exhibit, and it kind of changed all of them. And they wanted to get super serious about uh, about their writing and about their music. So they talked to Lamb. They talked to Eno, and Eno's like, "Okay, so it sounds like you guys, sounds like you guys are serious. So I'll go into the studio with you." So they hold up inside of Slain Castle, Slain yeah. Castle, yeah, in '84, and start recording in this giant castle. And they basically just live and record there for months. It's incredible. Yeah. It, well, and we talked about that documentary, right? On yeah. it too, which everyone should look up. It's on yeah. um, it's on YouTube. It's really short. It's maybe thirty minutes, but um, they had a director that documented some of the recording process of the band with Eno and Lanois at Slade Castle. Um, and that's it's kind of ahead of its time too to to have an in house, yeah, um, you know, absolutely person there to film what they really don't know is going to be the outcome. And we could even see it as a, you know, U2 is always a very visual group. They've always, yeah, they've always leaned towards that. And we could, we could see this as maybe a precursor to like rattle and hum and things like that, that they would do later on. Yeah. Um, but this is the U2 in that documentary is a completely different U2 than what you see later in the eighties. They are very soft spoken, mm-hmm. very unsure still, uh, now I will say that Bono's ego was out of control at all times. <laughs> like seriously, there's a quote. This this quote from Bono is one of the craziest things I've read. With it's like it's like so egotistic, but it's still the truth. So you can't like fault him for it, really. But the quote is uh, it was about Unforgivable Fire, and he said, "We knew the world was ready to receive the heirs to the Who." So he's already putting himself and the band as the heir apparent to the who, right? And then he said, all we had to do was to keep doing what we were doing. We've become the biggest band since Led Zeppelin, without a doubt. Okay, so now now you've already said you're heir apparent to the who (laughs) and the biggest band since Led Zeppelin. Well, just playing devil's advocate. Was he wrong? I I mean, is that egotistical or confident? I I don't don't know. Because we know the end result. I mean, it's not that far off it's it's really quote, not that far off honestly. but the second half of the quote is what i think makes him go okay well i don't think he's just being an asshole i think he really means it because he says but something didn't just feel something just didn't feel right we felt we had more dimension than just the next big anything we had something unique to offer the innovation was what would suffer if we went down the standard rock route we were looking for another feeling so it it's like by taking that quote and thinking about what he's saying on the outset, it's like, damn dude, you're just going to put yourself up there on the Mount Rushmore rock music. Yeah. But what he's really saying is like, we just don't want to be that. We don't want to be the next Led Zeppelin or the next, the yeah. who we want to be you too. And we want to do our own thing. Um, but it, I, I had to reread that quote two or three times because I was like, you know what? <laughs> to digest it a little bit. But he's kind of telling the truth. They were that big at the time. They really... Yeah, I mean... I mean, what was the concert where they did Sunday Bloody Sunday and he grabbed the flag and everything? That was Red Rocks. So, yeah, and you know, that he'd, was, already, he'd already shown he could, like, command a crowd, right? Like, 
he'd already shown that. Oh, totally. And that was kind of the beginning of it really. Right. That Red Rocks. And that was just by chance because they had already, um, postponed the concert because of heavy rains. Oh yeah. And then, um, I think the alarm maybe went out and played a little bit and then they were going to film it and everything. And Mike Peters was supposed to come out and sing, knocking on heaven's door something like that <laughs> yeah. with you two as an encore and so they decided to go out and play you two did and they hit record on filming and it was going so well they they kept straight filming it and didn't disrupt anything by having mike peters come out wow so it was just i don't think i ever knew that yeah that's pretty awesome but i to me, that was probably the beginning of U2's climb. You know, they had taken that next level. And, uh, how and old were you when that was? What was that, 83 or 82? That would have been 82 or 3. Yeah, yeah. 12. Probably 82. 12. So had you already... Um, I, yeah. Or maybe well, were you a bit too young to fully take in, like, U2? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was definitely Because they were pretty young. heady then. Like, yeah. Was, I mean, I knew New Year's Day and Sunday Bloody Sunday and all that. Yeah. But definitely by the time 84 hit with Unforgettable Then Fire, you were really hitting your teens. Well, and it was MTV and so, right. you know, Pride. And then, of course, Live Aid. We're jumping ahead yeah. a little bit, but Live Aid. That, that's, that's the other half of the story yeah. is Live Aid. Um, so, yeah. So, they... So they go in with Eno, they got Lanois as the engineer, and they uh, you just started talking about Pride. Pride is is easily the highlight of the record. Um, yeah. It was the biggest single on the record. Let me see what it charted at. Surprisingly didn't chart as high as I thought it would. No, yeah, I don't um, remember it. Of course, if it was 84, it also got caught up. In the land of Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA, yeah. Michael Jackson was still, you right. know, I mean, even Madonna, I think. So there was a lot. Of yeah, it only Purple like, Rain. Pride made the UK top five, but it only cracked the top forty in the US, yeah. which is wild because you can't, you can't go anywhere now and not hear it. I mean, it, it's on every radio, every classic rock radio plays it. Right, that's it, one of their. It's a staple. Biggies, yeah. Yeah, it's ubiquitous for classic rock yeah. radio. Yep. Which um, is funny, classic rock radio. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's there's Pride, which is which is absolutely the highlight, and it's what they spent the most time on. Mm-hmm. They really struggled with Pride um, because I think that, I know from watching the documentary, they said, uh, and before I forget in the documentary, you know, you, you were talking about all the other bands that were, becoming big at the time there's a great scene where uh they got a guy in with a violin that's like plucking some strings and whatnot for uh for the unforgettable fire song and he starts playing this little bit and he says oh that's starting to sound like flock of seagulls and larry (laughs) pops in the camera and says cut cut that out of this don't don't put that in there we're not going to be flock of seagulls which was kind of funny that is Um, funny but yeah so they so they start working on pride and bono gets the idea of i want to make this song about reagan's america yeah, but then the he, he reads this uh, this book about Martin Luther King, and I can't remember what the, the book name is, but it kind of changes him mm-hmm. and uh, and di- makes him do a deep dive into civil rights movement and America's history with the civil rights movement, uh, which 
would probably be fairly new information to him at the time, seeing as they're from Ireland. They're not yeah. from here. Well, and they hadn't, at that point, they really hadn't spent a whole lot of time in America. Right. You know, so they were still kind of taking it all in. And, you know, they had their own conflicts going on in Ireland that were separate from our conflicts in the yeah. United States. So, uh, so he takes a deep dive into Martin Luther King, and this album almost becomes a, a bit of a protest record. There's a lot of themes in here. Mm-hmm. While he doesn't directly denounce anything or he doesn't directly take a, a hard stance on anything, I guess you could say, the lyrics float in and out of topics that are very like topical yeah. of the time. There's no like every, it, there's no like Billy Bragg to it. There's no, no. you know, everybody rise up and stuff. Right. Yeah. But the, the pride in the name of love chorus is so bombastic and huge. It's almost like a rallying cry for love instead of hate. Right. Um, and for being proud of, of love and, and proud of mm-hmm. what you stand for, yeah. that sort of thing. It's almost like this album and these songs were the kind of beginnings of that side of you too. Yeah. As far as getting a little bit more political right. or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of civil minded. Yeah. Yeah. He hadn't started any of his civil service stuff yet that he, you know, that he started later on. Um, even with like with the one campaign they're still doing now. Yeah. He hadn't started that no. route at all. Of course, they were still young. They were young, yeah, young guys. Super young. And, um, you know, love or hate Bono, he is a good person as far as he does a lot of I great think his, work. Yeah, his head's always like his head's always in the right place. It's just the way he goes about doing things sometimes can leave a bad taste in some people's mouths. Yeah, that's neither here nor there on this album. <laughs> um, but let, let's talk a little bit about. Um, about the songs on the record other than pride because pride's the big one pride took forever for them to record it took forever for them to uh to get the vocals down on mm-hmm. bono still says it's an unfinished song so take that however you will i, I think it's pretty well finished i is think it's the way i feel yeah, about it i think it's pretty well finished now we talked about the album on the whole feeling a little unfinished because there's a lot yeah. of experimentation a lot of open-ended things mm-hmm. going on a lot of um a lot of just jamming on like Larry Mullins and um, uh, a lot of ambient who's sounds. The, who's the bass player? I can't. Uh, Adam Clayton. Adam Clayton. Larry and Adam kind of jam a lot on here. You can hear them right without yeah. a lot of guitar on certain parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of that, that that goes on in it, especially like on Fourth of July and yep. Promenade. Promenade. Um, I feel like that the edge. Um, kind of, this was like the first album where that edge sound kind of started. To yeah. I would like, I know a lot of people shit on edge for like how he plays guitar. It's, it's a known, it's a known quantity. A lot of people just say he plugs in a bunch of effects and then hits one chord and that's the end. I, I would tell them to listen to wire. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And then like you go play that Yeah, and make it sound the way he makes right. it sound. You know, I mean, you can talk shit about him, but when you hear him, you're like, oh, that's the edge. He's, yeah, he, you know, he's an amalgamation of a lot of different sounds. He's did the David Gilmore delay sound. He's uh, the guitar player for the Skids in Big Country. I can't think of his name. Oh, yeah. Stuart, uh, whichever, whatever his yeah. last name, I can't think of it. He's an amalgamation of that kind of post punk sound. Uh, maybe a little bit of the guitar from Susie and the Banshees, like a little bit of that rhythmic, yeah, that rhythmic ac- aspect of it. Because a lot of them, that was one thing that Edge 
on New Year's Day, he was trying to capture some of that guitar sound that yeah. they had on Susie and the Banshees. So all he's an amalgamation of the 80s sound that he's taken little pieces of and made his own. Mm-hmm. And it is his sound. It is his sound. It, it, is, it might be driven heavily by effects, but it's still his sound, and he's still playing it and making those things happen. So um, I think Wire is an incredible guitar, sound, guitar it song. It really is. Um, and, you know, it, the way it st- the album starts out perfectly it's, to me. It's a great, it is the, it's, it's, the, um, it's one of the all-time best album starts yeah ever a sort of homecoming and it it also it shows them this is not the war you two from the first notes of a sort of homecoming it does not sound like the last album they they are rolling out their new sound and who they will be from here on out pretty much true very true and they've with that first song like there's proper placement for pride yeah and it or for that matter, the whole album was sequenced very well. It's very smart, you know, as far as putting those little, I don't know, interludes, maybe. It, it does. It does have some, like, some more experimental interludes yeah, to it. it. Held, like, you know, side two, you've got Fourth of July that runs into bad. Mm-hmm. That's the perfect just kind of intro or interlude to bad. Which is you know bad is i will say the the album version i really enjoy but it's nothing compared to that live version from no, live aid no and honestly that became a a concert staple for them it's you such know? a great song and it, it just builds and builds and it builds does. and builds and builds and, and that's and, the mark of a great song if it comes across better live at least in my eyes well and and the reason it was a turning point on live aid was because he gets out and dances with the yeah. girl during it yeah and that was like a huge thing yep because uh, he just pulls a random girl out of the crowd yeah. and like slow dances with yeah, her to bad, not, which is pretty wild. Wasn't planned. Um, but you know, even last year when they were doing the Joshua Tree tour, mm-hmm. so them playing Joshua Tree from start to finish is incredible. But they also played Bad and Pride. But seeing Bad, even you know, x amount of years later. It's still a showstopper. They're still a great band. Just, They've never stopped being a goosebumps. great band. Yeah. Um, and I think they still enjoy playing those old songs too, especially one like bad that came from this experimental period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but so, so yeah, like there's the way the album works is there's, there's singles in a way. They're not really singles. They're all kind of experimental, but there's songs that that have better structure. And then there's more like avant-garde, just kind of floaty, floaty pieces, Mm -hmm. sort of homecoming, which is, probably like a top five U2 track for me, honestly. I love I, that song. I, I can almost put that song on repeat and just loop it because it's it's a song that doesn't have a, a clear structure to it, really. It kind of mm-hmm. just floats around. Yeah. The bass and drums kind of just float around, and the guitar does its own thing, and Bono just kind of scats a lot of the vocals yeah. in a way. Um, but it's so good. It is. It's so good. And it sets a tone for the whole album, basically. It really does. Yeah, that the sound you hear on Sort of Homecoming, you hear throughout the whole record. Yeah. And you do hear a little bit of that Daniel Lanois sparkle, too, mm-hmm. um, that we've talked about in the past on other podcasts, yeah. especially with Bob Dylan. With, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, mercy. Oh, mercy, man. That you got to get that sparkle from Lanois. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so Sort of Homecoming, Pride, which, of course, Wire, 
Unforgettable Fire, the title track. Man. Great. What a stunner that yeah. song is. The side one is top to bottom pretty solid. Yeah. Apparently it didn't do well in the States. That track didn't, which is funny now because you'll hear it yeah. on the radio all the time now. It's yeah. like it's a classic rock staple once yeah. again. Uh, it charted really well in the UK. Um, it They released it in 85 as a single, and it it made a top 10 hit in the UK. It was their third ever top 10 for you two. Um, but just didn't do anything in the States. No. Um, there's also uh, something I thought was interesting was the, the track on side two, that Elvis Presley in America. Oh, yeah. Um, which is, you know, it's not the best song. Honestly, it, it kind of it falls under itself a little bit under the weight of itself just a touch mm-hmm. but what's neat is it is a improvisation based on slowed down backing track from a sort of homecoming so they slowed down a sort of homecoming and played over it and that's what that track yeah. is and if you go back and listen to it you can kind of hear it which is interesting that is um and of course there's bad that we've talked about as well uh but then you get the album close which is also one of the one of the best album closes. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah you know, it kind of is per it. It's with, it's just great bookends with a sort of homecoming in MLK. Yeah. But also maybe leaves a little continuation as to what's to come. I, I think so. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't end on like a finality. It ends on like, this is just this chapter is moving right um and maybe that's what bono meant with the unfinished quality of it maybe that's why he True. felt it yeah um but mlk is is just a it's a meditation on martin luther king mm-hmm. basically over some really soft synth playing yeah and it only lasts two very and a half tasteful. minutes it is very tasteful yeah. um i did read something that said where bono said this was his more this was his beginning to be a poet period this was when he felt like he started writing poetry instead of just, just words on paper. Hmm. Um, now the band all consider themselves because they were still religious at this point. They'd yeah. already, you know, they were still doing their Christianity religion thing. Um, and he said he considered them as a conduit. So everything they did, he felt like was coming through them from a higher power. Yeah. So he, so it gets a little heady, <laughs> but so he, he didn't want to write too much. Because he said he felt like he was getting in the way of the conduit if he wrote too much. Yeah. He wanted to keep it as simple as possible. <laughs> Take that as you will, <laughs> however you like. <laughs> but um, another interesting fact is uh, Chrissy Hind yeah. is on Pride on the backing vocals. Mrs. Kerr. Yeah, Mrs. Kerr. That's strange, <laughs> isn't it? Um, also, Peter Gabriel. Did some, yeah. did some vocals on yeah. Sort of Homecoming on well, a remix version? probably comes from uh, Eno, wouldn't you say? Uh, I'm sure he Or Lanois, either one. I'm sure yeah. Lanois worked with Gabriel as well. Yeah. But yeah, Eno and Gabriel had a working relationship. Yeah. Uh, didn't Eno produce maybe like the third record? Seems like it. Maybe Security or something yeah. like that? Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense for him to be on there. I'm sure he just probably stopped by the studio one day or something. And then they're like, hey, you want to want to sing a little bit? Yeah. You know, why not have Peter Gabriel on your album? Can't hurt. Uh, so so let me ask this question. Where do you put where do you put this record in the pantheon of U2 albums? Oh, wow. Because this is a really tough question on this one. It is a tough question. 
I feel like this could is probably U2's most important album in their whole discography for the fact that it created that U2 sound that we now know. Yeah. And it's what took them to the next level, that superstar level. That right. There would be no Joshua Tree without this, which we know what Joshua Tree did for them. That pretty yeah, much jo- put them into a whole different And we should just level. mention, if you don't know already, this is the predecessor to Joshua Tree. Yeah. This is yeah. The, the one before, um, as it may. Yeah. Um, and which Joshua Tree is just... Just, it's, I, would, I mean, it's it's almost become its own thing at this point. Yeah. Like, it's not even... Well, when you do a tour just based on <laughs> an album. Yeah, yeah it, it's its own thing now. That kind of... Um, but where do I put it? I put it pretty high up there. I mean, to me, you know, Joshua Tree's five stars. This is probably 4.5. I, I, can, I completely agree with you on that. I love war. I love... Um, I don't don't know if you can consider Rattle and Hum an album. About half Mm -hmm. of it was probably original and not live. Probably depends on who you ask if they they consider Rattle Um, and Hum an album or not. A lot of people really don't enjoy Rattle and Hum. We are not part of that crowd, uh, but a lot of people really don't enjoy. That's kind of my my stopping point. I mean, Octoon Baby. Right. See, that's that's where me and you really, like, that's where our paths (laughs) really start to. I'm not saying I don't like post rattle and hum oh it's okay i know you don't i like i like some of it yeah there's a really good album's worth of material but no (laughs) all those years Um, post just one album's worth but i i I love the early stuff for its punkish quality can you spit out like a top five u2 albums can you like oh could you quickly put like put them in order yeah probably joshua tree are we going to include Rattle and Hum? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I include it. Uh, Joshua Tree, Unforgettable Fire, um, probably War, Rattle and Hum, October, or Boy. You ready for my hot take? I am. I'm sorry. I've been hogging the mic. No, you, dude, I've been <laughs> hogging the mic this whole podcast. Um, I was talking about my hot take for the for the top five. Do it. Joshua Tree. Yeah. I don't think that it's uncontested. Yeah. If somebody doesn't have Joshua Tree as their number one U2 album, you need to <laughs> have a, have a conversation with them. I, I, uh, texted a good friend of mine, uh, Lori, who lo- absolutely loves U2. Mm-hmm. Um, and we listened to, I mean, nonstop in the eighties yeah. in school. Her favorite is unforgettable fire hands down okay she said. all right i'll say this if if they're if they're one isn't unforgettable fire or joshua <laughs> right tree. so i'm gonna match you on on joshua tree and unforgettable fires one okay. and two. I, right. I, I think that's an easy sure. one too yeah um my third is octung baby yeah i just love that record it's it's so much fun and like you're you know it's you're ex- gr- it is a great album your experience of being 12 when this stuff was coming out mine was i was 10 and 12 when mysterious ways came out yeah and i was just like wow it just blew me away because <laughs> it, it just didn't sound like anything else really that i'd heard especially from you too like i knew i knew where the streets have no name as a yeah. kid everybody knew that sure. song it was on the radio constantly but when you hear mysterious ways for the first time and hear that guitar sound it's 
for a kid. Yes. Let me yeah. put that in perspective for yeah. a kid because I'm sure at your age, at that time, you had already heard a lot of things that sounded similar to that. Yeah. But as a kid, listening to the radio, I hadn't heard anything that had that that yeah. crazy of a sound. Well, in that time period, too. And that time period. Yeah. Or even like one, when one first came out, oh, I was like, yeah. man, yeah. what a what a huge song. Like, Massive. There's a lot happening in this Massive. song. Um, and then the tour that supported Octung Baby as well. Yeah. That was huge. And, you know, the prank calls to the president, yeah. things like that. Those <laughs> I loved those things as a kid. Right. I thought yeah. that was the best thing. Even the Wayne's World bit that was on, yeah. on there where, he, where, uh, where Garth played even better than the real thing on yeah. the drums. I loved all that stuff. <laughs> um, so, so that's three. So Octung Baby's three. Yep. Four is probably going to be War. Uh huh. Five's a tough one, man. It is tough. Um, Cause you know I even really like some of the later albums a lot. Like, what was the one that uh, was it? How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb? Was that oh, the one? Oh yeah, that? yeah. That's, that's a really good album. Don't leave out Zuropa. I don't like Zuropa. <laughs> See, that's the thing is I can't. I'm like I'm like you with that, but I can't go past Octung Baby and be yeah. happy. Yeah, um, I mean, Octune Baby should probably oh, be right on home, right on home would be five. Yeah, there we go. I feel bad for leaving out Octune Baby, but I just I heard it so. Much. I think it's fair that you leave it out so because much. I know it's one of those records that like you've just heard so many yeah. times. It'd be like, like another example is like Leonard Skinner. We all know that that first Leonard Skinner record is amazing, but we're not gonna go just listen to it because we just heard it so yeah. many times. So I'd put in the same boat as that. Yeah. So I'm going Rattle and Hum is a U2 record. All right. <laughs> I like it. So cheers, man. Right. 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 Right.